6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 and 2. We are now going to undertake a review of the book of Nehemiah. This is the first session, and we'll just take two chapters because we also want to include some background material that I think you'll find really essential. Just to review a little bit, uh, we're in this period in Israel's history where they're returning after the Babylonian captivity, sometimes called the exile of the nation. And so this is the post-exile history. Ezra and Nehemiah are the post-exile history, and along with Esther. And also there's a group of prophets that are called post-exile prophets. Uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi being chief among them. And uh, so... It's about 538 B.C. In the book of Ed, we, we, we saw that roughly 50,000 know, were encouraged by Cyrus when he conquered Babylon to go back and rebuild their temple. So about 50,000 did. And about, after about 23 years, they finally did uh, manage to get a temple built. Very modest compared to Solomon's. In fact, the old-timers wept because it was fell so short from what they were used to. But the, the, the new people, the new generation, were thrilled because at last, after their 70 years captivity and the 20 years of rebuilding, they had their temple, they had an altar, they could return to the worship that had been prescribed in the Torah. It's about 57 years later that Ezra brings another few thousand and uh, with a primary thrust of trying to um, institute a reform or a revival because they had, despite the fact they had the temple, they had the uh, the offerings and such in form only. They actually had fallen back into the pagan practices that were the very reason they were sent to the exile in the first place. And under Ezra's leadership, they uh, rolled their sleeves to try to return to uh, that which God had um, order, you know, ordained for them to do. But it isn't very long. I should just mention that they still, even after Ezra's reforms, they have some problems. But obviously these, uh, these three uh, subjects are the topics of the book of Ezra. And the book of Esther fits in between those, between the, after the temple was built, but be, before Ezra's return, is, is the uh, saga of the book of Esther. Very dramatic book in, of, of, uh, uh, of these events. All of this is under the Persian Empire. But what we're going to do focus now is about 13 years after Ezra went back to Jerusalem, um, we're going to, uh, or act to, act back to Babylon too. Uh, we're going to go to um, Book of Nehemiah, uh, and uh, it's going to open in about 445 BC. And uh, the main event that we're going to focus on tonight is Nehemiah's success in getting the authority to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, the kings of Persia, obviously, Cyrus was the one that created the Persian Empire back in Ezra chapter one. We talked a lot about that then. But you come down through uh, the the, uh, fifth of those um, kings was Xerxes I, which was the Ahasuerus of Esther. That's a title rather than a name because there's there's a uh, 
and Azarias of Ezra 4, and there's also an Artaxerxes of Ezra 4, but they had other names in the Persian reckoning. But anyway, it's, it's Xerxes is the one that is the king of Esther, and uh, it's eight years after the um, events of Esther, which climax in the feet, what they call the Feast of Purim, eight years later, Xerxes died, and his son, Artaxerxes I, uh, Artaxerxes Longimanus, is the one that's going to be prominent in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. So this is the guy that we want to focus on because he's going to be very important for some discoveries we're going to make here. So Nehemiah 1, we'll just call it a progress report. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, uh, it came to pass, and, and this is not the Nehemiah that was mentioned in some of the lists of Ezra, by the way. It's a different guy. But anyway, it came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hananiah, the, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, or meaning had returned. Uh, escape sounds like they did it surreptitiously. No, they were released to go back. But anyway, uh, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. So he's, get, he's going to get a progress report here. Um, now, the book of Nehemiah is going to cover about 20 years, by the way, maybe more than that. And uh, from about 445 B.C. to about 425 B.C. Um, and Ezra and Nehemiah overlap. But uh, in Shushan the palace, it mentions it here. A few remarks about that. See, Esther became queen in about 478 B.C. And by the way, Daniel was carried there a uh, hundred years earlier in a vision in Daniel chapter 8. And uh, in any case, while serving in the same palace is when Nehemiah gets this progress report from several men who had come from Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. It came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This report obviously depresses Nehemiah for a lot of reasons. Um, Judah is a province, of course, of the Persian Empire, but uh, the people there are, are troubled and they're dis- uh, disgraced. And Jerusalem's wall is broken down. They don't; they can't just can't rebuild it because that would they don't have the authority to do that. And uh, six it says the gates were burned. Actually, six gates are going to be later repaired in uh, chapter three. But this leaves the city defenseless against attacks of of, uh, of what shall I call them terrorists, whatever, and so forth. Now, you may recall that the people started to rebuild the wall back in Ezra chapter 4. But Artaxerxes stopped it. The enemies complained, said they're going to lose taxes, and they had they contrived all these arguments. And Artaxerxes granted the request, stopped the wall being built, but he left himself an out. You may recall we made a, uh, uh, Ezra made a point of that, and it's very important for us to understand. He, he didn't make it final. It was like, in a sense, sort of like a temporary restraining order. And... Uh, so uh, he was pressured by some Samaritans and a guy by the name of Rehum, who was a commanding officer, uh, probably a Persian officer responsible to Artaxerxes. And, uh, but now Nehemiah, you, you'll pick up before the chapter's over, uh, is in a very unique position with the king of Persia, with Artaxerxes I. He is the cupbearer. And that turns out not to be a... Don't think of him like a wine steward with a cup around a chain. Or no, no. He tasted the guy's food before he ate it. 
So he was, uh, and that turns out to me he's a very senior official. We'll talk a little bit as we get there. Anyway, in verse 5. And said, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have, see we, includes himself, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. So he calls a spade a spade. He puts it right out there. Now, by the way, he's fasting. Fasting you may be, it was not a requirement of the law except on Yom Kippur. And, 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 but it often was indulged involuntarily in, at a time of uh, someone who's ex, extremely distraught, what have you. Now, in verse 5, he is beseeching the Lord God of heaven. Now, he knows he's in a situation that he cannot solve himself. This is too big a thing. And uh, so he speaks uh, the uh, the uh, Lord of heaven. That's speaking of God's sovereignty. He speaks of the God of the covenant, uh, his covenant relationship of Israel, the great and awesome, or great and terrible, or awesome God. He's very, he's very, very focused on God's power and majesty. And what's implied here in the statements is that he can't handle it, but he knows God can. You know, it's interesting how often we may um, hesitate to deal with something because it's far too big for us to handle. But it's not too big if you team up with God. <laughs> I say, uh, you and God make up a majority, right? Or more than that. In other words, uh, the power of prayer. Another way, and I think it's even a more valid way to look at prayer, prayer is not, it's not when you're giving God a work list, a wish list. Rather, it's a way for you to discover what is God wants to have happen. Prayer is God's way of enlisting you in what He wants to do. Because you're going to discover that the results of Nehemiah's prayer are things that were prophesied precisely to the day, I might add, a hundred years before. See, that's one of the reasons Jesus says when he, when the, to the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. He includes in the prayer, Thy kingdom come. Isn't that a silly thing to pray for? Hey, God, have your kingdom come. I like it. It's not going to happen unless you say so. God's kingdom is, you know, is coming. You're praying for it. It makes you part of the action. It's God's way of enlisting you in what He wants to do. And uh, that's part of, I believe, what's going on here. Very, very impressive prayer. But it's even more impressive to realize that it is going to be fulfilled, and it's going to be fulfilled in mechanics that are going to be precise to the very day, and uh, yet predicted a century before, before Nehemiah was born. And so, uh, let's be... T- okay, so, so that's... Uh, Verse 6. There's a danger when I start out living because I depart from my notes and then we get all lost here. So. Okay. But uh, this prayer of confession is interesting. He says, I and my father's house of sin. Nehemiah includes himself among the sinners. And I don't think that's just a false humility. I mean, he puts himself in the camp. 
Prophet Daniel did exactly that 100 years earlier in Daniel chapter 9. And Ezra did a similar thing back in Ezra chapter 9 that we read uh, not long ago. And so, he, so Ezra, I mean, Nehemiah is acknowledging and sharing responsibility for Israel's disobedience to God's laws. And, of course, he puts himself in a totally submissive mood here, uh, position here with all of this. Okay, verse 7. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and we have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Now, we could spend an hour deciding what's a commandment, what's a statute, and what's a judgment. They're different things. But I don't think you and I don't need that discernment. We recognize there's a bundle of things, and we've, we've, we're messed up with all of them. Commandments, statutes, judgments, by which thou commandest thy servant Moses. So he's speaking, of course, in the context of the Torah here. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. So he's reminding, really himself, but he's reminding himself in front of the Lord that, that God had told Moses that if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. That's what they did. In the, to the, in, 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 and that's what, by the way, they've been doing for the last 19 centuries. But let's get ahead, not get ahead of ourselves. But then he said, but if, he's continuing to quote what God said to Moses, but if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, Though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. And that was the weeping groan of our Lord Jesus Christ as he rode the donkey into Jerusalem and he saw Jerusalem spread out. So Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered thee like a hen gathered of chicks. That's the purpose of all history. That God would gather his own. The tragedy of all history. He says, but she would not. And the triumph of history of the day will come when he doesn't end. And that's the last three verses of Matthew 23 that you can take a look at, put in your notes, check it out on your own. Let's move on here. Now verse 10. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee thy servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cupbearer. That's I think an editorial note for you and I so we'll be able to follow the rest of the narrative. Um, he's praying to God but he also knows that there's only one man on the earth that can solve this problem and he's going to have an opportunity to go see him. That's why he says, this man sees it. That I pray thee by the servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. In other words, he's hoping, he's, he's going to end up having an opportunity before his boss, Artaxerxes I. And he's frightened. And he has cause to be. Because he has, he stands a good chance of offending the king. And if he does, his life could be forfeit. We don't, we, you know, we don't live in that kind of environment, so it's hard for us to realize the reality of that. But Esther understood it. If you read the book of Esther, you understand the jeopardy she had just entering the throne room, expecting if you you go in there uninvited, it's subject to death. And the king's held out a scepter, and every, as you know, the, it all unfolded. But, but uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, so humanly speaking, only one person is uh, can make it possible for Nehemiah to help his. Uh, uh, compatriots, and uh, that's the king he served. 
Now he also knew that years before this same king had issued an order to stop building the the, uh, the uh, uh, Jerusalem, and he's the only guy that can reverse that order. Now he's a cupbearer. You and I tend to visualize maybe a, a maitre d' at a restaurant with a little cup around his neck that helps you sample the wine. No, no. Uh, he served. He tasted everything that the king ate to make sure it wasn't poisoned, and. Uh, we have uh, Olmsted, his history of the Persian Empire, points out that uh, the cupbearer in later Achaemenid times was to exercise even more influence than the commander-in-chief. So he was at right, the king's right hand all the time. So he was, he was uh, not the king's buddy, don't misunderstand it. He still walks very carefully, but he, is, he has daily access to the king. Which brings us, of course, to chapter 2. The decree of Daniel chapter 9, I'm calling it. Let's move on. Verse 1, chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. And now I had not been before time sad in his presence. And uh, by you notice four months have gone by from chapter 1. Nehemiah has had four months to think about and pray about this opportunity that's now going to present itself. And uh, even though this is the first month uh, of, uh, it's still Artaxerxes' 20th year because his official year began in the seventh month. And uh, of the and, 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 the way you account the regnal years is important if you're going to get the chronology, but we're, we'll keep moving here. Um, Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? There's nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. Now see, the king notices for the first time since he's known Nehemiah that Nehemiah is dragon. He's not up. And the king is disturbed by that because he's apparently not sick, but he's really down. And so uh, he's obviously curious. And this opens the door for a conversation that Nehemiah had four months to prepare for. It said unto the king, Let the king live forever. That's obviously a royal greeting. And why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? It's kind of interesting. See, he's, he, he's, he's, he's nervous because he, he could lose his life in this conversation if he's not careful. Because to, 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 uh, to be sad in the king's presence was regarded as a way of, of, of uh, as an offense against the king. And uh, so he's nervous about that part of it. And he also knew, and an example of that, the whole book of Esther is built on that whole premise. So if you're familiar with Esther, you know what I'm talking about. The other thing Nehemiah knew, he knew that the request he was going to make was a very bold one, because this very king had ordered the work stopped. You'll notice he doesn't use the name Jerusalem. He avoids the use of that word. He'd been thinking about this for four months, so I think his words were very skillfully crafted here. Anyway, says, when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, the gates thereof are consumed by So that he's tying itself to his own national linkage here. And the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? <laughs> and so Nehemiah immediately sends a telegram <laughs> to the throne room of the universe. He says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I suspect that was a... See, now this, this is... It's been 70 years, by the way, since the temple was rebuilt. But the city is in ruins. You need to understand the difference. And the city itself is the issue here. So anyway, Artaxerxes' heart apparently is open 
to Nehemiah's statements. And so he's asking Nehemiah what the king could do. That's a, that's a very, very key opening here. And I said unto the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the, which is the province, the Persian province of Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. That's it right there. Hmm? Well, not quite. But anyway, the king said unto me, and the queen also sitting by him. Now this implies, by the way, that the whole episode is a private dinner, because the queen was not normally there for official business. And the fact that she's there and the wine and so forth implies that this was some kind of private, intimate dinner here. But in any case, the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, and by the way, that, that, something else. Um, that's not Esther, by the way. It's the, it's the king following Xerxes. And, uh, her name was, um, Damaspia. Damaspia. So it's, a, it, some people think it's Esther. No, uh, it's, it's a successor. But anyway, um, he says, for how long shall thy journey be? And well, well, when wilt thou return? Do you realize by the king asking that question, He's in effect saying, sure, when will you be back? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Now, scholars are confused about how long that time was, but he remained in Jerusalem about 12 years, then returned to the king for several years. Now, get that from Nehemiah 5 and Nehemiah 13, so you can sort of sort it out. But he apparently told him a specific time. But he's not through. <laughs> you know, if you, if you got the opening, let's go for it, right? So in verse 7, Moreover I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come to Judah. And a letter unto Asaph the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And then I came to the governors beyond the river. I gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Now here's the important thing. He didn't just go alone. He had military escort. Now when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, these are a couple of the bad guys, and a servant of the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. This is interesting. Um, so Nehemiah has permission to, trans, to go through the trans-Euphrates provinces. He's got military escort. He's got the authority to, to build what he needs here. And uh, came to Jerusalem was there three days. Um, and I arose in the night... And I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. So it's at night. He's going to do a, a, a reconnoitering of the city at night. So and I went out by night, by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire." The journey, by the way, Jerusalem would take about two months, they figure. Uh, Ezra's trip, which was 14 uh, years earlier, took four to five months. But uh, 
Okay. Now the soldiers, by the way, that that, that were on the military escort, they stay in Jerusalem for his protection. And uh, um, I might mention. I meant. To, oh, that's where I want to mention uh, uh, this guy, uh, Sanballat the Horonite. He was apparently from Beth Horon. That's the place. Remember Joshua in the Battle of Beth Horon, the sun and all that. That's about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. The Elephantine Papyri was written 407 BC. That's about 37 years after all this. Uh, lists Sanballat as the governor of Samaria. So he apparently is one of the Persian officials in the region, but very, very adverse to the Jewish interests here. Okay, so uh, anyway, he's here. Uh, I want you to notice how he does his research. Quietly does his research. He hasn't told anyone while he's there. He's got all the authorities, but no one knows quite. He took three days here to think, to pray, to check things out. And then he makes a careful survey of the the walls and so on. And uh, then I went out to the gate of the fountain and the king's pool, and there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. So he couldn't get by because of the rubble. So, so I went up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And we could talk about where all these various gates are and so forth, but basically he's doing a circle of the, the city. And the rulers knew not whither I went nor what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the rulers or nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, see now he's ready, he's done his homework, he's got his plan, he's ready. Then said I unto them, ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. And uh, so, see he's got a, he's done a secret survey, he's got a workable plan, so now he's He's laying it on him here. You know, he says, Then I said, said I unto them. Who's the them? The Jews, meaning the common people of the group, the priests, the nobles, the whole gang. He's, he's sharing with them his program. And then verse 18, Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Nehemiah. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.